know any pockets that do this, but it's just something. Our Father. Who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. St. John the Beloved, pray for us. Lord, if I All right, uh, so I'm changing the, the game plan as usual. When I teach, I change the game plan. Um, it just, it, it occurred to me there was just absolutely no way to get through seven sacraments in three hours. And you might think, that's ridiculous, you're just talking too much, you're probably right. But um, I think that, as I, as I thought about what to do today, um, or actually, well, we have, what, two hours now to get through seven sacraments, since we haven't dealt with any of them. Um, I thought, no, we just manipulate the class a little bit and um, and make it the sacraments of initiation instead of all seven sacraments. The sacraments of initiation give us, I, I would say, a foothold into understanding all of the sacraments. In fact, I could say uh, that we could just cover baptism. Because in baptism, the whole of the sacramental life is found. It is the beginning, like a seed. And so all of the parts of the sacraments are found there. So if you understand baptism, you're going to understand the seven sacraments. So I'm just going to say, today we're going to deal with baptism. And next class we'll deal with confirmation or chrismation and the Eucharist. Okay, how does that sound? Trust me on this. I'm not trying to just, you know... Uh, get out of teaching because there are four. I just, I really want, I don't want to shortchange you on these sacraments of initiation. They're so important. So, anyways, questions from last time or from your reading? I did. I have a question. Yes. In regards to the infant baptismal. Okay. What they. Um, or paragraph number. Paragraph number 1250. 1250. I've got an extra catechism back there if you guys want. Okay. It says, the church and the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after Mm-hmm. All right, I'll tell you what, we're going to get to that. Okay. So that's a good question, but it's, it's definitely something we're going to cover today. Um, although, uh, okay, I take that back. Let's deal with it because I because I actually wasn't going to deal with it explicitly. So one of the parameters shortly after birth. Um, in the Eastern churches, which you read about, if you did your, your, your uh, reading today, uh, the common practice is 40 days. Okay, 40 days. Why? Because it's mirroring or mimicking our Lent. It's a little Lent for the infant, right? This time of preparation. Okay. Um, in many traditional Roman um, families, they look to baptize the child as quickly as possible. And so you'll oftentimes see in traditional Catholic communities or Tridentine mass communities in that baptism on the first Sunday following the birth. Um, not so much today, it's not so common today that you see that quick. 
I would say this is kind of today a general rule. The more serious somebody is about the faith, the quicker they're going to look to get their child baptized. And we'll talk about the reason why, the necessity of baptism today. Okay? Um, however, there's also another ingredient we want to throw in there, and that is the catechumenate. And the catechumenate is always considered to be... Um, in fact, you look at that 1249, because you're right there. 1249. Catechumens are already joined to the church. They are already of the household of Christ and are quite frequently already living a life of faith, hope, and charity. With love and solicitude, Mother Church already embraces them as her own. So the church says, look, if somebody is driving to the Easter Vigil to be received in the church and gets in an accident and dies, they have full baptismal desire. And therefore, we call that, which we're going to talk about today, baptism by desire. Okay? The same as the infant. The infant from birth, or I'd say from conception, has been intended toward baptism by, its, by its, the faith of, his, of its parents. And therefore, that child, even in the womb, can be considered a catechumen, especially in light of the Eastern Church's practice of waiting the 40 days to mimic the catechumen. Right? That was a limbo with Isu. We're going to talk about limbo tonight, brother. I know that's a that's a touchy subject with you. So we're going to get. No, I know. I know. I know. You, you all just yeah. Contradict, you know, what, what, what the church means. Let's get to limbo in a second. All right, because I promise I'm not trying to contradict the church's teaching on anything. But you're right. I mean, the church was wrong. Yeah, but no, my language there. There's a hole that can be had in my language intentionally. So we'll talk about it. Okay. So the grace is extended. Yeah, in other words, what is God? Well, this is why we're only going to deal with the first three sacraments. God is not bound to the sacraments. The sacraments are, are, by revelation, the only way we know of that man can be saved. Okay? But yet God is not bound to the sacraments. And so when man opens his hands and turns to God, at that moment, you can see almost the catechumen begins. Because that's all that God is looking for, is if we ever intentionally turned our back on Him, well then that which He wants to share with us can't be shared. But the moment, however slight, that our hands turn open to Him, then that shared life begins to flow, right? Which ultimately comes about in the sacrament of baptism, chrismation, Holy Eucharist, and so forth. Okay? Um, so it's, a, it's almost it's a delicate balance because you don't want to say, well, the sacraments are necessary, and yet God knows the intention of the heart. I could be baptized all day long. If the intention of my heart's bad, that baptism is, is, is not efficacious for me. It's not valid. Right? If I come to baptism having no intention to, to really be baptized as an adult, it's an invalid sacrament. Right? So intention has everything to do with it. So I turn my life to him, I open my hands to him. It's the same. We ever find ourselves in a state of mortal sin. The church says, confess your sins now. And make your way to the priest. Right? In fact, in the Eastern churches, the, the um, my, my confessor, when I come up to confess before him, it's, it's side by side in front of an icon of Christ. And he's the first question he has, have you confessed your sins to Jesus Christ? Because, I mean, it's not a magic show, right? And do I have sorrow in my heart? Have I come before God and asked for forgiveness? And if so, then now sacramental confession can be uh, had with, uh, with all the benefit, if you will. Okay? 
How's that sound, Jennifer? Not, not too good. Go ahead. I know I came in late. No, that's all right. Go. Which uh, the baptism and the efficaciousness and the mm -hmm. intent of the recipients. Mm -hmm. So when you have parents who go through the motion of getting their children baptized but really don't practice the faith, what is that? Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about that with. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Here's, here's the thing. All right. Yeah. That's, that's fine. No. 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 Not at all. If the parents don't have the intention to baptize that child, then you're right, you might have a case. You might have a case. And that, that gets into a little bit beyond my knowledge and what the church would say on that point. Um, however, any parent or most parents bringing their children to be baptized are not intending something contrary to what the church intends. Okay? This comes into why a, why a, why a non-Catholic can baptize validly. Why a non-believer can baptize validly. Okay? And the church says simply that they intend to do what the church intends to do. Right? See, well, how is it not possible? an impediment to grace? What's that? And there's not an impediment to grace. Right. Like, right. right. The heart that doesn't want to be baptized. Sure, sure. An impediment for sure, but I'm saying, how can this person baptize the person validly, yeah. right? And and it seems to me the best answer to that is that that a Protestant who may not have the full understanding of the church's teaching or the desire to do the full understanding, right? What they're intending to do is still not contrary to what the church intends. So, I baptize you to become a friend of Jesus and to make a proclamation in front of the community. That's it. Nothing is happening to you. We're just making a public proclamation that you're now a friend of Jesus. That's it. No, none of this sacramental mumbo-jumbo participation in my life. Still, that is what the church intends to do. Baptism is a public proclamation in front of the commu believing community, right? In, in the church. So what they're intending is still what the church intends. Okay? And I, I would say the same with the parents bringing their child. Though they may not be very faithful people, they're still at least, hey, we're gonna, our child's going to be a nice Christian child, whatever that means. You see what I'm saying? Yep. All right. Other questions? Good. That's Wait, good. no, no, no. The validity of the, of the sacrament does not rely on the holiness or the, the intention of the parent. I mean, you, you figure they're not, they're not there. You know, they have some intent to have this child baptism, it, baptized, even if it's for the right. the, the look of show, you know, the show. But even if the priest were, were an immortal sin or say yes, but, a priest, okay, yeah, 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 but then you want to make a distinction between holiness. Uh, of the person and intention of the person, two different things. So intention of the person is necessary. Okay, so a, a, a priest walks by and is saying his prayer, okay, and he begins his prayer, he's holding his cup, before he drinks his cup, he's going to say his prayer of blessing, uh, on his, the drink he's going to have, right? And he says, um, or, or he's, or he's re singing a hymn. I, I mean, just, I'm just, okay. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I bow down, down, and do whatever it is. And he trips, falls, and spills the water on somebody. It's not a valid baptism, right? Because his intention wasn't there. You see what I'm saying? But you're absolutely right. Holiness of the minister is not necessary, right? Okay. That might seem ridiculous, but you see my point is you don't, you can't accidentally, and there's ridiculous stories of, of, uh, of um, 
priests and professors in seminaries uh, that I've heard, I, who knows if they're true or not, but you know, the, when they're teaching other priests to say the Mass, they refuse to hold a, a piece of the host in their hand when they're saying the words of institution, teaching them. But it's stupid because they need intention to be able to confect the sacrament. Right? Okay. <coughs> All right. Um, what do the sacraments of initiation accomplish as a whole? Uh, paragraph 1212. 12. Paragraph 1212. 12. We're going to be doing a lot of reading tonight, and I'm not going to let you out of your head. Finish my notes because you guys wasted the first time. <laughs> but we're in 15 minutes. Look at this. 15 minutes, and we haven't even begun. Hi, Cynthia. There's an extra catechism on the desk if you want it. And there's an extra Bible, anybody, in my uh, stack, my, my uh, bookcase there. The sacraments of Christian initiation, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, lay the foundations of every Christian life. The sharing in the divine nature given to men through the grace of Christ bears a certain likeness to origin, development, and nourishing of natural life. Okay, this is going back, quoting um, St. Thomas Aquinas here, who, who first introduced this idea, this parallel between the sacraments of initiation and our natural life. This is also the root from which we begin to apply to the sacrament of confirmation and chrismation the idea of becoming an adult in the faith. Okay, becoming an adult in the faith. So, even though St. Thomas points to this parallel, what we're going to talk about later is, initially, I mean, it's a nice parallel to make, and it might be helpful, but what we're doing is then importing backwards, okay, from the natural life into the sacramental life, instead of letting the sacramental life highlight and, and increase our understanding of our natural life. Anyways, that's not my point right now. My point in 12.12 is... That the sacraments of initiation lay the foundations of every Christian life. <coughs> the sharing in the divine nature given to men through the grace of Christ. So what do the sacraments of initiation do? What do they accomplish in our life? Bring grace into the soul. Good. The sharing in the divine nature given to men through the grace of Christ. Sharing in the divine nature. What's that remind you of in the catechism that we've looked at already? Before last class. Say that again. What does that remind you of? What paragraph in the catechism that is so important to our understanding of the whole catechism and the whole Catholic life? Paragraph number one. Right? That he freely desired to make to share his own blessed life with us. His own blessed life. For God, his life and his nature are not distinguishable, okay, because he is perfect existence. And therefore, when we talk about his nature, we talk about his life, it's the same thing. Sharing in his own blessed life, sharing in his divine nature. Given by what? The grace of Christ. What does the word grace mean? Gift. Uh, yeah, literally gift, Yes. When we're talking about sacramental grace or the grace of Christ, what are we talking about? It, what are we really talking about? It's a gift of Christ, yes, but what gift is it? The gift of his own divine life. Right? So you see, the sacraments of Christian initiation are bringing about in our lives, they are the foundation for that which the whole faith, the whole our whole life is about. And that is living not only the life we've been given here on earth, but living ultimately the life of God himself. Okay? 
Baptism. Immediately the catechism turns to the question of baptism. What is it? And when it says what is it, the first point it makes really is, or a question it asks is, what does the word baptism mean? And uh, this is a good point because the same question about grace. When you guys get to these questions of words that don't make sense to you, make them make sense to you. Alright? Don't sit there and talk to me about grace and about baptism and chrismation or confirmation. Ask yourselves, what does the word mean? And that's going to get you most of the way. Or at least it's going to be a door. So what does the word baptism mean? From the Greek? Baptism. Something like that? Baptism. And an iron there. Well, it's an iota. Baptizing. To what? To immerse. To immerse or to plunge? Okay, good. To plunge into what? Really? Into grace. Really? Plunge into water. Ah, somebody's looking at their catechism. What does it say? <laughs> to plunge into yeah. into the death of Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. The longer I'm with you, the more we're going to look at this text together. You need to bring your Bible. It's in the car. Conception. No, that's all right. Chris is going to grab you one. Chris is going to grab you one. It's in the car. Bring it. All right. If you want. And look at that. I'm missing my own Bible. <laughs> oh, you stole it from me. <laughs> You guys, yeah, pull it in the middle and you can share it, okay? Fine. Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of you who have been baptized into Christ, Romans chapter 6, verse, when I at? 2 or 3. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. How can you? How can you? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized, plunged into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We might too rise from the dead. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self, the old man, was crucified with Him so that the sinful body might be destroyed, and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is free from sin, but if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. 
For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive in God in Christ Jesus. So, notice the language in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized like Christ Jesus? Right? No. What's your Bible say? Into, into Christ Jesus. Notice the language. You are plunged into Christ. And ultimately into his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Most of the time when I, if I would ask you, if I close your catechisms and all that, I ask you, what happens when you're baptized? What are you going to say to me? Oh, come on. You wouldn't have said that. But maybe you would have said that. All right. Fine. All right. Your sins washed away. Good. Receive sanctifying grace and the light of the Trinity, your soul. Yeah. Okay, yes, but I would, I would venture to say that most Catholics, the reason I venture to say this is because I know giving baptismal tours on a regular basis at my church with Roman Catholics there, I ask, what happens when you're baptized? And they say, original sin is washed away. Original sin is washed away. And that's true. It's true. However, that's a theological conclusion based upon what I just read you. There is nowhere in the Bible that says that baptism washes away original sin. Yes, Paul talks, uses the language of washing. Okay, washing with a bath of regeneration, things like that. But it never says, you're, when you're baptized, it washes away original sin. And again, I say, it's true, but it's a theological conclusion. Based upon certain biblical evidence. Okay? I don't like that language very much, and the reason I don't like that language very much is because it gets us in trouble with certain Protestant tendencies. Now, what are those Protestant tendencies? To see original sin and to see sin as a positive reality in the soul. For Luther and ultimately for Calvin, sin, especially original sin, ultimately corrupted the soul and was a positive reality which God looked upon man and was disgusted by what he saw. That's not Catholic theology. <coughs> Catholic theology teaches that when God looks upon fallen man, he sees man, in a sense, handicapped, missing something he should have rather than having gained something he shouldn't have. Sin is not a positive reality. Sin is a lack of a do-good, either in your action or in your soul. Okay? And the reason I'm insistent on that is because if we understand that what man looks like apart from the, the grace of Jesus Christ, the life of God, is he looks like man missing the life of God. And that's not the way we were planned. That's not the way we were made. We were made for something more than that. Okay? But if we start life with sin in our soul, then we can't be a part of Christ. But Lewis, change your language. When we start life without the grace of God, okay. then we can't be part of God. And so 
but back until we receive the life of God into our souls, which makes us part of God. And that takes place in a certain way. Okay? You see what I'm saying? Alright. Isn't that illustrated when Jesus Christ himself was baptized? He began his, he manifested that he was becoming, coming into the fullness of the Father at that he point. But he didn't, because he didn't have to be baptized. He didn't have to be baptized. No. Because he did not have a reason. It's a good question. Did Christ have to be baptized? No. He did it as a symbol. I'm going to leave it there. It's a good question. It's a good question. We want to know. We're going to get to it. <laughs> the Catechism does not turn to that question immediately. <laughs> so we're going to look at 1216 first. Look at 1216. Paragraph 1216. Well, no, again, like, uh, they're using Pauline language there. Okay, in fact, you see it from Titus in the paragraph above. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this language of washing is there in St. Paul. What I'm saying is that because of the Protestant Revolution and certain ideas, we now have to be careful with our own ideas lest we mistake, have an improper understanding. St. Paul can talk about washing without having any concern for Luther or Calvin, right? <laughs> right? But now that we have Luther and Calvin in the mix, we have to be careful with our language. Okay? Um, so look at 1216, Jennifer. Go ahead and read that for us. This bath is called enlightenment because those who receive this catechetical instruction are enlightened in their understanding. Having received in baptism the word, the true light that enlightens every man, the person baptized has been enlightened. He has become he becomes the son of light. Indeed, he becomes light himself. Okay. Baptism. That's, that's fine. So notice they say two things there at the very end. He becomes a son of light. Indeed, he becomes light himself. What's the light you're talking of? Right. Talking about. Christ. Yeah, Christ. So translate that for me, or stick that word in there for me. He becomes a son of light, or a son of God. Indeed, he becomes Christ himself. Right? And we know that beautiful language from St. Athanasius. Um, uh, God became man, that might, man might become God. Okay? Participation in the divine life, participation in divine nature... Began the catechism, paragraph number one. It was there throughout the creed as we followed it through. It was there at the beginning of, of Christian initiation. Okay, this constant repetition of the same theme, saying, look, not only is God doing kind of a nice thing for man, I mean, ultimately, yes, that is what it is, but I mean, I think, unfortunately, that's the way we look at it in many ways. That as Christians, God just kind of likes us. And it's not that at all. That God loves us. And love ultimately seeks to share its own life with the other. And that's the mystery of the faith. That is the great mystery of the Catholic faith. Would you say that again, that God loved us so much. Now, I'll just repeat you Jesus' words. No greater man, no, no man, what about <laughs> any man than to give his own life to his friends, to lay down his own life to his friends. There's nothing, once you've done that, what else is left? If you've given your own life. And that's the love of God for us from all eternity. Jesus Christ did what he did because he's God. And that's what God has done from all eternity is give his life. And that's what we're made to do then. Okay, we'll wait till our catechism, uh, what, 501 on, the, on, the, on uh, the moral life. Notice the catechism then turns to 
that section two there, prefig- prefigurations of baptism in the Old Covenant. It's very important that we learn from the structure of the Catechism. That's why I asked you guys last time, why is it the Catechism puts in order baptism, then confirmation, and then the Eucharist, when most children receive baptism, the Eucharist, and then confirmation? Okay. Well, the way that the Catechism is structured is important, we want to pay attention to that. So, it says, what is, what is the sacrament called? Baptism. What does baptism mean? Being plunged. And it's into the death of Christ. Fine, leave it. Let's go to the Old Testament. And immediately it starts talking about Old Testament uh, prefigurements or types. Okay? And I want to ask you guys, is this just nice? Is it just nice that the Catechism says, look, in the Old Testament, there's kind of similar things that happened. Isn't that... Isn't that nice, Jim? Isn't that cool that kind of we get to go through water and become a friend of Jesus and Israel went through water to become a friend of Moses or God and, and so it's kind of the same kind of thing and well, isn't that nice? Jennifer, isn't that nice? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> he was preparing us, yes, but I think there's more. It's, 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 it's up to us to receive the gift of God. Okay. Right? Because we are all made the image and likeness of God. Okay. But without God or the Holy Spirit indwelling into us, we are just a person. Okay. So what do you say? It's a way that we open up ourselves to receive, you know. Just like. Go ahead. To invite uh, God to dwell in us. And just like who else? Just like Old Testament. Good, good. I want to recall, you guys have to turn there. Uh, back to... Uh, oh, sorry, what did you say? Just like, oh, just like Old Testament figures. Just like Old Testament men, right? So we're opening our lives up to the grace of God. <laughs> you, know, I just, you don't have to turn there, but it's paragraph 1085 if you want to make a note of it. All that he did and suffered for all men participates in the divine eternity. And so transcends all time. Don't turn your eyes. Don't just listen. Listen. Transcends all time while being present in them all. In them all. Inasmuch as as the crossing of the Red Sea was salvific for Israel, it was because of Jesus Christ. Inasmuch as our baptism is salvific for us, it is because of Jesus Christ. In some sense, his actions, because he is human and God, he draws up into the divine life, or in a sense, his human life is a manifestation of the love of God from all eternity. And so wherever those salvific actions have taken place through salvation history, it is that same act of God's love toward men. And so when we're looking back at these Old Testament types there in uh, 1217 and, and, and so on, and the following, it's not because it's nice. It's because when you are being baptized into Jesus Christ, you are going through the Red Sea. Just as much as any salvation that took place in the Red Sea was in the baptism of Jesus Christ in the Jordan River. So the time is not, in a sense, is not being bound 
Because God has freed this salvific event from time itself. So that now we can come to the table of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist and sit with the apostles at the Last Supper. When you attend the liturgy, you're not just a little McLean church attending the liturgy. Isn't that nice? We are standing at the throne of Jesus Christ and all of the angels and all of the saints and Jesus Christ himself is there with the Father. Let's move on. When John baptized... Sorry, Go ahead. Are you trying not to be preaching? No. Yes. <laughs> okay, when we baptize, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes. But until Christ came... Yeah. Nobody knew about the Holy Spirit. Okay. So yeah. who did and who, who, who did John baptize in the name of Did he baptize just in the name of the Father? What name did John baptize in? I mean, well, what, 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 did he do, what did his baptism do? What, when, that, that's a good question, Lewis. I think we've talked about that before, haven't we? What did the baptism of John accomplish? Okay, and I'm going to leave that. We'll have a question and answer period after class today because that's a good question. Because Christ's life was just beginning. Yeah, you're right. Okay, so let's just hold on to it. All I'm saying, here's what I'm saying. That in as much as the cross of the Red Sea was salvific, truly salvific for any man in Israel coming through there, coming to faith in God, it was the work of Jesus Christ which accomplished that salvation. Because the work of Jesus Christ is the work of God from all eternity. Okay? So look, what is the catechism from 1217 through, uh, through the baptism of Christ? 1225, it talks about Old Testament prefigurements. And give me some of those. What are they? Noah and the flood. Before Noah and the flood. I know it's a little hard to read there. You'll see it. You're careful. Creation of the world. Good. Creation of the world. Noah. What else? Crossing the Red Sea. The crossing of the Red Sea. What else? The crossing of the Jordan River. Those are the ones that gives us. There's many more that we could point to. But those are good enough because what, how are these going to be helpful for us, friends? How will these images or prefigurements to the baptism of Christ and our baptism help us understand baptism. Does it show us how like the covenants of the Old Testament, all these different, you know, you have a covenant with Noah and his family, a covenant with Israel and God, and they're Hang all on. through that. Yes. Design. There's something more though. There's something more to remember. There's always something more. How, how can they really be helpful for us in our understanding of baptism? Yes, that's one part of it. Well, you know what? I'm going to put that out there. That's one of them. Yeah. Through, through this understanding of Israel's coming to Mount Sinai, through the Red Sea and Mount Sinai, its covenant is formed, right? So therefore, if this is a true prefigurement of baptism, in baptism, what should take place? A covenant. What else? What creation? What images of creation are going to be helpful to us? Water. Where do you see water in creation? Hovering, right? It was, it was throughout, right? And what hovered over the abyss? Yeah, the Holy Spirit. I love that word. Good. That's your brother. I know. What else? From creation. Creation imagery. 
Good, light and darkness, right? What else? Breath. What's that? Breath. The breath or the okay, breath, and this is what, what Jennifer's talking about for um in 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 uh in uh Hebrew. Uh, spirit, breath, and wind are all the same word. Okay. Okay, so it can be used. The breath, the spirit of God. What else? The word. All right, the word. Okay. We're at paradise. Now I'm opening up a can of worms, right? Because we've got what? We've got six thousand things we could say. Tree of life. Walking with God. What else? And all creation is good. Okay. We can keep going there. What about the devil? Okay, what else? What about uh, crossing the Red Sea? How is this going to help our understanding of baptism? Faith. Water, faith. All right, faith, good. Come on, friends, come on. How many of us are sitting here? We can come on. All right, saving. All right. They're saved. What are they saved from? Slavery. Slavery. Wait, was that what you first said? Slavery? I'm sorry. But they are, okay, that's good. From slavery, yeah. They have to cross through that to get to paradise. Yeah. And and in fact, you see the breath of the wind of God, right? We're going to look at that in a second, I think, if I know, I'm not sure, but coming to and blasting those waters apart and separating the waters just like a creation. Okay? Uh, What about the flood? We skipped the flood. Water again. All right. Water. What about the dove over the over the water? Right. Noah sends out the dove over the water. Remember what he said before the dove. The raven. The raven. What color is the raven? Mmm. Black was hovering over the abyss, and then the spirit of God came in, and the raven. Saint Jerome says that when Noah released the dove, in fact, you see the iconography in the east. It says the dove is coming from the hand of God, not from Noah. Right? So Noah is an instrument of God's gift of grace upon the sea. And, and St. Jerome says that the dove chased the raven out. Just like when God spoke and light came into the world and darkness fled. It's good stuff, right? Yeah. What else? Death. Burial. What else? Your covenant, right? Sacrifice God. Okay, look, you see what I'm saying? Because these these realities are not simply nice parallels, but are part of the salvific work of God, by studying them, by meditating on them, you will begin to understand what takes place in baptism. And without them, our understanding of baptism is just is, is deficient. What is baptismal faith? What's called for? What's baptismal faith? We say, well, look, when we're baptized, we enter into the tomb of Jesus Christ. So in some in faith, I'm willing to die with Christ. But in Romans chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, St. Paul says that Israel was baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. What does he mean by that? Moses was a, 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 a Okay, that's that's part of it. 
They're made one with Moses in the Red Sea. Why? Because it was Moses that had to say, cross. You will get to the other side. If you want to understand what baptismal faith is supposed to be about, it's supposed to be about that. Because when we die to our old selves and live with Jesus Christ, we give up our entire life. And now we live that life in order for the resurrection, for the crossing of that sea, safely. Imagine Israel, what faith it took to say, well, all right, I'll just go walk into this with walls of water on both sides, knowing full well that I should die. And I will walk through that. Okay? So you see these, these prefigurements are more than just nice types or nice pictures. They give us the content of the sacrament itself. Okay? And they, they grumbled and moaned and moaned, just like we do through because we say we're willing to die, but are we? When it gets tough, we mumble and grumble and good. Yeah, that's gonna be helpful. The mumbling is gonna be great, great help with the with the Eucharist because because Israel explicitly mumbles against Moses in the, and, and complains and says, "You gave us this worthless food." And John six, what word does John use? The same word, right? They mumbled against Christ when he talked about the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. So you see that two parallels. And all of a sudden, you start to understand that what the Eucharist is is our food for the journey through the desert. Okay? Alright, 1223. Christ's baptism. All the old covenant prefigurations find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. He begins his public life after having himself baptized, been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. After his resurrection, Christ gives this mission to his apostles. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I command you. Our Lord voluntarily submitted himself to the baptism of St. John, intended for sinners, in order to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' gesture is a manifestation of his self-emptying, Lewis. The Spirit who had hovered over the waters of the first creation descended then on the, on the Christ as a prelude of the new creation. And the, and the Father revealed Jesus as his beloved Son as Adam had been revealed as the Son of God in Genesis. In his Passover, Christ opened to all men the foundation of baptism. He had already spoken of his baptism. What's that? Is somebody a question there? Fountain of Baptism. What did I say? Foundation. Oh, Fountain of Baptism. He had already spoken of his passion, which he was about to suffer in Jerusalem as a baptism. So notice, his baptism points to and participates in his passion. In fact, you could ask the same questions about both realities. What took place in Christ's passion, death, and resurrection takes place in his baptism. In some sense, his baptism gives us the sacramental gateway by which we can participate in the death of Christ without dying. Okay? The fathers tell us that Christ entered into the Jordan River for three reasons. And the same three reasons you could, he could answer, he could, they could ask or say that he entered into death. So, Lewis, I'm going to give you your three reasons. Okay, and what are they? First of all, what's the problem? Did Jesus need to be baptized? Why? Yeah, he had no sin in him. He was already filled up with the grace of God, with the life of God. Right? 
So the father saying, why did he get baptized? Or rather, why did he die? And we know the answer to that, right? It's the same thing, to fulfill all righteousness, right? And to give his life ultimately for us. And the answer is love. Okay? The fathers tell us he entered into baptism or into the tomb for three reasons. First of all, because whatever God touches, he sanctifies. He makes it good. He goes to the wedding at Cana, and what happens to marriage? He sanctifies marriage because a place of man's salvation. He touches bread and wine at the Last Supper. And what happens to bread and wine? It becomes a place of our salvation. It communicates to us now the life of God. He touches water in the Jordan River. And what happens? Common water becomes a place where the life of God can flow. Notice, especially the Eucharist and with baptism, he's not using like the high end, he's not touching gold and silver and jewels. He's touching the lowest things of creation because even those lowest things can ultimately have the most powerful effect on our lives because all of creation is meant to participate in the life of God, to be a place of our sanctification. Okay, Remember, there was the tree of life. We'll talk about this more. There was the tree of life in the beginning by which man came and ate and received the life of God. That was God's plan in the beginning. That you and I even more so than water, would be able to go out and touch creation and touch our fellow neighbors and our friends and be a a vehicle by which they could participate in the life of God. Okay? The second reason is because when Christ entered into the tomb, he met the one who dwelt there. He met the ruler of the tomb the devil. Our Lord came for one reason, to free us from what the devil had dealt to us. He dealt to us death, and so Christ entered into death and met the ruler of death. And the fathers tell us when Christ entered into the tomb, as when he entered into the Jordan River, he struck the blow against the devil and freed man from the bondage of death. So now no more could death have dominion over him. And a third reason Because each one of us who have received death from our parents, received original sin, the lack of the life of God in our souls, we're in need of meeting him and being freed from that bondage, be given back that divine life. And so they say that when Christ reached down into the Jordan River, he grabbed hold of my hand and your hand and Moses' hand in in the Red Sea and Noah's hand in the flood and the three young men in the fiery furnace and you name it anyone who was saved he grabbed hold of their hands and took them out he freed them from the tomb alright um Twelve twenty three through twelve twenty four. We read that it makes us a new creation. He um, reported to last time also Cardinal Ratzinger, who had talked about that moment when Christ turned around. That uh, well, the, remember the exitus and the reditus. 
right? He returned to God, and man who had turned his back upon upon God at creation, and then there in the flood, or in the, I'm sorry, in the baptism of Christ, just as in the tomb, he took that lost sheep upon his shoulders and began to return it, to walk it back into paradise. Notice that Christ goes out of the Holy Land, the place of salvation. He goes into the Jordan River and out into the desert and brings mankind back to paradise, walks them back into Jerusalem. Okay? There's a whole salvific event that takes place which recalls for us the exile of the sons of Abraham and the return with Moses, the exile of Babylon and the return of Israel, and now the exile with Christ and the return. Okay? Um, 1239, the essential rites of baptism. 1239. I just want to point out a few, a few of them. We're not going to go over all the aspects of the rite of baptism, but now that we have, I think, enough tools in our hands, we can do this pretty quickly. First of all, a triple immersion. Why? For, let's, read the, let's read the prayer. 1239. The essential rite of the sacrament follows. Baptism, properly speaking, it signifies and actually brings about death to sin and entry into the life of the Most Holy Trinity through configuration of the Paschal Mystery of Christ. Baptism is performed in the most expressive way by triple immersion into the baptismal water. How many of you have seen a baptism by immersion? Dunking them down into the water. Yeah. And yet, come on, Cynthia, you have to. And yet, it's not the most common practice in the church today, is it? Most common practice is a pouring on of water, which, before I say anything else right now, I'm going to tell you, totally valid. There's references in the Old Testament, absolute valid and authentic way to baptize. However, the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches that it is preferable to baptize, baptize by immersion. Why? It says because it's the most expressive way. Why? What's it expressing? Immersion into death. Plunging. Purification. Oh, come on, friends. Don't give me three or four different answers. Well, okay, first of all, is it most expressive because of the three? The three, yes, refers to the, first of all, the Trinity, yeah, baptism in the life of the Trinity, what else? What else? And maybe more importantly, initially for us. Good. And Christ was in the tomb for how many days? Three days. Remember, baptism is a union with the death of Jesus Christ. First. And then a resurrection in the life of the Trinity. So always ask yourself the question, how does this refer to death, and especially the death of Jesus Christ? Okay? We enter into the tomb then for three days. So why is it most expressive to immerse the child versus a pouring on of water? Why is it preferable? So it'll stick. <laughs> no. You can't find a drop on your head. Yes! No! Sorry. Yes, he did go down into the water. 
water, but there's a reason why he was baptized by immersion in the water, because it meant something to the Jews. Good. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lauren's getting frustrated with me. Would you just get it done? Yes. Because we're being immersed into the death of Jesus Christ, being buried, we're being covered over, finished off, underneath the ground. And how else do you do that? Killing the person without killing them, making them die without them dying, but to put them down into water and bring them back out again. So for the Jews, they saw they saw baptism, first of all, as an entrance into this water as a death, first of all, because of the flood and because of the crossing of the Red Sea. Right? But ultimately because Christ entered into the tomb. And that is our entrance into the tomb. And the sacraments should show forth as best as we can the truth of the mystery that's taking place. Okay? Go ahead. Uh, All right, good. My mind's too crooked. What's that? My mind's crooked. Uh, 1241. What a water. Why is that? Why do we not do that? Why don't we do it? Because it's difficult to do. Right? What are you going to have to do? You're going to have to build a big old baptismal font. What are you going to do about getting people naked? Right? Uh, it was a difficult practice in the early church. They had what they called deaconesses of sorts, ladies that would assist for other ladies, things like that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy, right? So it takes more it, it takes work. But when you recognize as a baby, I mean, Baby can be naked. That's right. But you still need a pretty big tub, and there is. I think we should do it. Anyways, that's it. Do it at my church. If you ever want to come see baptism by immersion, come to my church. Preferably when my baby is not being baptized, because you won't see the baptism, that's right? right. Sorry, I've got too many people. Okay. 1241. The anointing with sacred chrism, perfumed oil, consecrated by the bishop, signifies the gift of the Holy Spirit to the newly baptized. Are you guys with me? Mm-hmm. Who has become a Christian. That is one anointed. So look, the name Christian means what? An anointed one. Okay? By the Holy Spirit, incorporated into Christ, who is anointed priest, prophet, and king. In the liturgy of the Eastern churches, the post-baptismal anointing is the sacrament of chrismation or confirmation. In the Roman liturgy, the post-baptismal anointing announces a second anointing with sacred chrism to be conferred later by the bishop. Confirmation which will, as it were, confirm and complete the baptismal anointing. Now, we're going to talk about that for a second. I said to you last time, we're going to talk about confirmation more next class, but I said to you last time that we end up importing all sorts of theology based upon bad practice a lot of times. And here's a good example. Because of certain historical, for certain historical reasons, we now today confirm the child not only after they've received the Eucharist, which is not the ancient order, but at a very late age. And then we apply to it what? A theology which says the meaning of the sacrament is the meaning of becoming an adult in the faith. Okay? Now, I don't want to go too far, and I want to say there's something to that in the sense that they say here, a completing or confirming or complete the baptismal anointing. Right? There is in confirmation a finishing off of what was begun in baptism. But it is that 
That's where it kind of begins and ends, friends. Confirmation traditionally was given to infants, east and west. Okay? But it also, because in Acts of the Apostles, it, were the, it was the apostles that were always called to give the sacrament of confirmation, to give the gift of the Holy Spirit, which they had received from the breath of Jesus Christ when he breathed on them after the resurrection. So it's always, and it still is today, proper to the bishop to confirm. Okay? So two different historical things took place. In the East, bishops started to delegate to their priests the ability or right to chrismate or to confirm, to give the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the West, because of a desire to hold on to that truth about the, the apostle or the bishop giving the gift of the Holy Spirit, it became practice to wait until the bishop came around to your town. At which point, he would confirm and give the Holy Eucharist. Okay? Why that order? Any ideas? Why the order? Baptism, confirmation, and then the Eucharist. Well, why confirmation to begin with? What's, what's the origin of that sacrament? Uh, the origin of the sacrament in the Old Testament... The, we're talking this morning, we're talking about confirmation, but the anointing of the king, and ultimately back to, to Adam, who received the gift of the Spirit, by which we had dominion to rule over creation. We'll talk about that another time. But in Acts of the Apostles, we see the distinction in the sacrament, okay, between, between baptism and confirmation. But Marie, your question is excellent, because if you read sacramental theology, there's always a struggle to understand the difference between baptism and confirmation. They're almost, in some sense, I'm being recorded, so don't take me with a grain of salt. They're almost two faces of the same mystery. Okay? Why? Because in baptism, what happens? Tell me quickly. We die with Christ, right? And then, what's the second half of baptism? We come alive and we rise with Christ. You will not rise with Christ without the life of God, right? And chrismation simply gives that life in a new and super abundant way. Right? So the best way, the baptism of Christ is ultimately our model that we want to look at, I think. And that is, first of all, Christ enters into the tomb of the Jordan River. He comes forth from that tomb and immediately what happens to him? The Spirit descends upon him. Right? Look at Adam at creation. The waters covered everything. Those waters parted, the earth came forth, and man was drawn forth from that earth, and immediately God breathed the breath of life into him. Or you could say the Holy Spirit hovered over everything, and so when he stood forth on that ground, he was clothed in the grace of God. Right? Man restored in the image of God. And then, as a full participant in the divine life, came forward to sit as a friend of God at the banquet table. Of God, why, which, where you'll be fed with the divine life. Okay? It wasn't until the mid 19th century in the Roman church that the sacraments ended up being flipped. Much earlier than that, this, the separation of the sacraments because of this desire to hold for the bishop, this sacrament of confirmation, at which point they received confirmation and then received the Eucharist. Very late, and in France, Tell me, friends, 19th century, mid-19th century France. 
Good or bad? bad. Very, very bad. <laughs> All right? Yeah, French Revolution. So uh, I'm not... No, I'm not going to go there. However, however, let's see. It was in 19th century France. It started to place where the sacraments began to be flipped. Okay? And you began to receive the Eucharist and then confirmation later on. And I'm only bringing this up, and we're out of time, but we have one more thing to deal with. I'm not going to let you go until we're done. Is that be ready because the Pope, the current Holy Father, Pope Benedict, knows this issue well. And he's talked about it a number of times. It's come up in bishop synods. And I do believe that in our lifetime, maybe not too far from now, we'll see that switch taking place as a mandate from Rome saying, look, there's no historical background for this practice. And you should be giving chrismation before they're receiving Holy Communion, right? And we should be confirming it at an earlier age because yes. there's the idea of waiting till I can reasonably understand what I'm doing has no basis in the Christian in, in authentic Catholic faith. Okay? The, the, the effect of the sacraments do not depend upon my smarts. And if they did, I'd be in a lot of trouble. Right? So just be ready for that and an understanding of, always understand in light of, first of all, Genesis and all of salvation history, the baptism of Christ and the, and the historic practice of the church. And then when it happens, we can get upset, right? We, yes, this is what we want. And always trying to restore a proper understanding of the sacraments. They are mysteries of the faith. Okay? All right, real quick, 1242. In the, no, we just did that. 1243. The white garment symbolizes the person baptized has put on Christ, has risen with Christ. The candle lit from the Easter, Easter candle signifies that Christ is the light and neophyte. In him, the baptized are the light of the world. That's why in St. John's here, I always have those nice big candles with all flowers around them. Israel was led through the Red Sea and across the, across the desert by the fire of God, the pillar of fire, right? And so the catechumen is going through the darkness of the Easter Vigil, being led by Christ, by the light of Christ. It's very important. Okay? The baptismal garment, those that have been here at St. John's Easter Vigil, you'll notice those big, beautiful, right? I have those handmade. Because, yeah! They're handsome, they're gorgeous. Because, here's the thing, you've seen these baptisms, unfortunately, sometimes when we have these little doily, that these, or whatever, these stick around their neck, little cardboard thing, little white cardboard thing, and it almost becomes ridiculous. When in fact, in the early church, the practice was to clothe the, new, um, the newly baptized in a white robe to show that they had been completely, they had completely put on Christ. Right, with the cross in the back. Oh, that one got stained. Okay? Do you see that? Because in, in the early church, we would wear this garment for eight days because of the eighth day resurrection. For eight days, they wouldn't take it off because they're shining with the life of God. Okay? Again, referring back to Genesis, you remember that at the fall, Adam was found naked. The father said, he found himself naked at the fall because before that, he was clothed in the grace of God. Right? He put on fig leaves and God clothed him in animal skins. Right? The father said he clothed him in animal skins because he was beginning to now act not according to rationality, not according to reason, 
but like the animals. And so at baptism, the child is stripped of their clothes, taken off. In the old days, they would, and you guys remember, what would you do with those clothes, the baptismal clothes? Anybody remember? Sue? No, okay. The tradition was the child was never to wear those again. They would either be burned or thrown away because they were the garments of sin. Okay? So I bring that up just because we see the, the richness of the sacraments if we start to understand them in biblical language and the richness of the rite if we start to understand it in biblical language. And how deficient our understanding is. And it's because of that deficient understanding that we get parents that don't care about getting their kids baptized or confirmed or going to the Eucharist on Sunday. Because we don't have that that whole patrimony and that tradition coming down to us. And the answer is not to throw out the white garment and throw out the candle. The answer is to begin to catechize ourselves again according to that biblical tradition. To change our worldview from that of 2008 to that of Jesus Christ. Baptism evincements, who can baptize, necessity of baptism, the effects of baptism, baptism in the body of Christ. You're on your own. <laughs> you know what? Sorry. I can't say. Alright, I'll tell you what. Let's, um, um, if you guys, some of you have to go, go ahead and go. And then if anyone wants to stay around for some questions, maybe we'll cover some of these points, like the necessity of baptism. You all know that baptism is necessary for salvation. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. Alright. Anyways, anybody need to go? Feel free? Yeah, go ahead. Alright. Oh, it wasn't that good, huh? No, <laughs> just joking. All right, Chris, go ahead. I'm just curious if this, if you think this mandate is going to come from Rome, that would mean giving communion to infants. Well, here's the problem, and the, the reason, in, in I think uh, 12th, 13th century, that um, that practice became a problem in the Roman church is because of the withdrawal of the, of, the, um, of the precious blood from the faithful because of a concern for it being spilled, which is a valid concern, right? So when you go, a lot of times you see traditional priests only give the Eucharist, only the, the, the body of our Lord instead of both together, although you receive both that are either species, um, is because of a concern for that for the spilling of the precious blood instead of sending you know eighteen people out with chalices and this and that and the other thing all over the church, okay. Um, so. So what do they do in your church? We receive by tinction. Every time the baby blows, they can eat for a little. Time. Oh, the, oh, the, oh yeah, here's the sorry to follow that up is that then the infant can receive the precious blood. And that was the practice in the Roman church also. And so as an infant is brought forward in my church, we see Holy Communion, a golden spoon is taken out and dipped into the precious blood and give it to them on their tongue. Yeah. It's great when they're infants because then they fall asleep. <laughs> um, Where did yeah. the thought come from with confirmation? I was always taught that confirmation was given at, at least at the age of reasons. Yeah. Reason for the so the child it's, could yeah. express their willingness. More importantly, uh, I'd say more historically accurate was the intent was the idea that the Eucharist would be given at the age of reason. Okay, which had I would say it would probably come into the Roman Church as early as the 14th and 15th century. 
Um, I was just in preparation reading. In fact, I'll make a copy of this for you guys for next time. Uh, Charles Davis on the Sacraments of Initiation. And he talks about that point um, that, uh, that it was quite late. And probably in relationship to St. Thomas, Thomas talking about, although it may have already been there, that might be why he's talking about it, but talking about this parallel between the sacraments of initiation and natural growth of a person, which is fine to talk about, right? It's the, the spiritual life and the natural life both parallel each other. But then when you start binding the sacraments according to what we see in the natural life, right, which St. Thomas would never have been a supporter of. So, um... Anyways, this guy gets nice because he gets all the dates of when these things started to take place. And in fact, um, uh, the practice of um, confirmation, chrismation of infants or young children was present in Spain very late. And because of the evangelization of the New World prior to the Council of Trent, which is when it became more kind of by custom law in the Roman Church to do this, um, because the New World had already been evangelized in Mexico, you oftentimes get still today the confirmation of, um, uh, of infants or very, very young children. And I was just talking to you? No. Yes, no. Me. No, I was talking, Gloria, I was talking to you about Texas, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Gloria, in Texas, right? Well, Texas is Mexico, basically. <laughs> so, for all, right? Confirmed as a very young child. Okay, so very common among them. Uh, Not in all Texas, because I'm in San Antonio. Okay, fine. We were, yeah. we were baptized. We yeah. were from the 12. Yeah. In the eighth grade. Yeah. So I mean, it's just. Yeah. It could have so, been a yeah. year's difference or something. I don't know how old are you are. So what do you? Okay. <laughs> in, in the archdiocese of New York, they didn't have enough bishops, but they used to have every parish every three years. Right. And I was confirmed like two days after my first communion. I was seven. And so it was second, third, and fourth grade, and I don't know why they had these older children. When it used to be younger children who were confirmed. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's sort of evolved into something right. strange. Right, and, and even there you're saying that you were confirmed after you were... I was, but two days yeah. later. Yeah, which is, I mean, good, oh, but sorry. you know what I mean? It's just, look, sometimes history begins to cause conflicts and problems, and that's why the church has in mind, and it says, hey, have we blown it in some way? Can we... Oh, I should say blown it. Can we better deliver the apostolic faith or the apostolic practice in a clearer way. If you read Sacra Sanctum Concilium in Vatican II, that's what it's all concerned about. Can we better express the Eucharistic mysteries? They had no concern about throwing out the, the entire tradition of the Roman liturgy. I'm being recorded. Uh, they had no concern about throwing out traditions of the Roman liturgy. What they had concern about was purifying that so that man could even better understand it. Is there a way, by, by putting the readings in, in the vernacular, for example, that we can better communicate the faith? Right? And so that's all, it's, it's simply what the poet, I guarantee you, the, he writes on this topic. He's going to say, can we express this in a better way? So we don't have to condemn what's happened. Right? We just say, is there a way to express this in a better way and give this, the, the graces necessary to the faithful in a better way? It better communicate this to the faithful. That's all. We're always going to work on that. Always. We've done it for 2,000 years, trying to work on doing it better, understanding it better. I almost think some aspect of it comes from 
Protestantism in the sense of being born again at a later age. You know what I mean? Like uh, it, it leaves a lot of that yeah. camp. Some of our understanding, I would say, comes from that. Right. Yeah. You should lose your faith, and I. I you know, the point that you made about the faith does not rely on our intelligence, or the grace yeah. of the sacrament does not rely on our intelligence, yeah. is a huge point that I think is yeah. lost completely. Otherwise, mentally ill children. Yeah, absolutely. Right. We, so. But I think in general, for the you know average child, when they're in seventh and eighth grade, when they're about to be bombarded with their hormones and everything attacking them in the world. For them to, to have this training in confirmation and what the church teaches about what is happening to their soul and the right. grace that they'll receive, it's so empowering to them to choose their saint's name and all of that. And the fact that they're getting grace, that they understand that now they will have grace, the grace is a sacrament. Yeah. All right, can I answer that by, by saying the point that I wasn't able to get to, and, and that's uh, baptism of infants, 1250, because the catechism talks about the importance of catechesis. So 1250. Okay, born with a fallen human nature and tainted by original sin, children of need of the new birth and baptism be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God to which all men are called. The sheer gratuitousness of the grace of salvation is particularly manifest in infant baptism. The church and parents would deny a child the priceless uh, grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth, which we talked about earlier, right? Christian parents will recognize that this practice also accords with their role as nurturers of life that God has entrusted to them. Um, uh, hold on. Okay, keep reading. Uh, 1253. Baptism is a sacrament of faith, but faith needs to the community of believers. It is only within the faith of the church that each faithful can believe. The faith required for baptism is not a perfect immature faith, but a beginning that is called to develop. The catechumen or the godparent is asked, what do you ask of God's church? And the response is faith. For all baptized children or adults, faith must grow after baptism. Okay, faith must grow after baptism. I know that's a, it's, a, it's obvious, but... What I don't want to do is say, well, isn't it, we, it's nice to have this time to catechize the children. What's happening is that, in, yes, today, when we're planning on just stopping catechesis right after confirmation, it's the only way to hold on to the kids. But let's not bind the church to ridiculous modern stupidity of not catechizing our children and bringing them up in the faith so that at 14 and 15 and 16 year olds, years old, they're not watching, you know, going off with their kids and doing drugs, or their friends doing drugs, but they're serious about the faith, right? So, like, for my child, that was one of the big things for my wife and I. I said, look, I said, we're going to get married and raise our kids in the Milkite Church for one reason. Because I want my child to have the grace of the sacrament of confirmation from the day of their baptism so that when they get to 14, 15 years old, they've been living that life of the fullness of the Christian faith, having all of the graces available so that at 14, 15 years old, it's not a question of holding on to them for one more year. It's a question of them becoming saints in the face of this disaster that we have going on in the world. Right? So they're really thriving in the faith, not so we're holding on one more year to bore them with catechesis when they could care less. Begin to baptize children? Uh, it's right there uh, in Acts of the Apostles. Uh, the, uh, 1252. The practice of infant baptism is an immemorial, immemorial tradition of the church. 1252. 
There is explicit testimony as practiced from the second century on, and it's quite possible that from the beginning of the apostolic preaching, when whole, quote, households from Acts of the Apostles received baptism, infants may also have been baptized. So in Acts of the Apostles, it says, whole households, and Christ himself says, suffer the little ones who come unto me. Right? So there's no evidence in the scripture that baptism was whole from infants. There may not be explicit evidence, but I'll tell you what the explicit evidence is, is when the church lived its life. And when it lived its life, it always baptized children. Right? So it gave, you want to understand what the unclear points are in the scriptures? You look at how the church lived, and the church baptized infants. Which makes sense. But there right? was also we, a period where they baptized as adults, right? Like, and they waited until the last minute to get it. That's bad practice. That we don't want to look at the yeah, baptism, yeah, bad practice of certain, yeah, yeah, like St. Augustine. So. Yeah. Or as I say, uh, Constantine, I should say. Um, okay, I have one last thing to say. Oh, can I say two last things? Yes, yes. talk. Yeah. Please. If you have to go, go. But um, the effects of baptism, 1265... Um, we could look at a couple of things there, but uh, it's not, not 1265, but 1267 talks about um, the baptism makes us members of the body of Christ, and therefore we are members of one another, right? We are plunged into Christ himself, and therefore we are put into this whole organic body, which ultimately lives based upon the other parts doing their job. And I know I've talked about this with you guys before, but Ephesians chapter 4 is beautiful in this, and so is 1 Corinthians um, chapter 10, where it talks about one's a hand, and one's an ear, and one's an eye, and one's a foot. It's talking about baptism. And so, look, if, if uh, Concepcion or, or Jennifer or um, Henry are not living the fullness of the Catholic life, it's going to hurt me. And if I'm not living it, it's going to hurt you. And if I am living it, it's going to benefit you. And if you're living it, it's going to benefit me. Right? We are sharers in the mystery of the life of the body of Christ. And which brings me to my point, and that is number 1270. 1270. Reborn as sons of God, the baptized must profess before men the faith they have received from God through the church and participate in the apostolic and missionary activity of the people of God. Uh... If that doesn't happen, then what we're doing in this room is absolutely of no use whatsoever. So I, I, especially a small group here, you guys are all that are sitting here right now for the most part are part of the, the core, like doing this, right? A lot of people come here and there, but we're always here. If we are not evangelizing people, we're going to go to hell. Yeah. And, Look what we're up against. Yeah, Sue, you told me the story of standing in the grocery line, haven't you? Yeah. Sue does this. She stands in the grocery line and hands rosaries out. The, 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 those cards that we have. Oh, yeah. 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 Get a card that says the mass times. Carry around the bulletin in your purse. It's, my brother just had Jehovah's Witnesses in his house today. They're knocking on the doors. We must begin to evangelize. And I don't care if you can talk or you can't talk. Friends, I can't talk. I am terrified of standing before people and teaching and doing things. I, I am. How many people saw me try to give announcements at Mass? Oh, yeah. With my knees knocking and my voice shaking? 
But when I talk about Jesus Christ and I talk about the faith, it's not me talking. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit, and He will remind you to do the same in your particular function, whether it's being the hand or the mouth or the ear or whatever it is. We have to do it. We have to bring people to this room, and we have. When's the last time you invited somebody to mass? When I began my ministries um, years ago, I was, like you, I was terrified to speak in front of people at all, and that's yeah. what I ended up doing. That's what I've done years yeah. ago. And I would drive literally from my house to my church, reciting Pope John Paul's mantra, be not afraid, be, yeah, not, there afraid, you go. be not afraid, right. be not afraid. And it really calmed me, and I, I was like having an out-of-body experience the first year that I, I could, I drive home thinking, I can't believe I, I just did that. that. I can't believe I just Talk about having an out-of-body experience by standing up here and yelling at you guys. Yeah, God has supply the grace. He will. Yeah, you know? he does. So anyway, okay, I'm sorry for getting so excited. Today. Baptism excites me. So, all right. Let's finish in prayer. Yes, please. Just stop on the stop. Yeah. And now many fathers said, Felix, finish his son. Glory be to the Father.